You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. His work has appeared in the American Journal of Political Science, Political Behavior, Political Communication, and Political Science Research and Methods. His latest book is titled Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Kevin Munger. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. um, Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Absolutely. So I'm a third year professor at Penn State. I did my PhD at NYU in the politics department. I've been studying social media and politics for almost a decade now. And I recently got into the topic of generational conflict because of a growing body of evidence that suggests that younger and older people use the internet in different ways. Uh, This led me to look into the kind of baseline demographic realities of the United States today and realize that we're in a somewhat novel historical period. And as I kept digging into this topic, I I kept getting more and more interested and this this prompted me to write uh, this book. Okay. Um, yeah. So your latest book is titled Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. I wanted to begin by asking what separates baby boomers from adjacent generations, younger and older, um, as well as the source of their disproportionate influence on American society. Right. So the labels, the specific labels are clearly arbitrary, and I don't want to get too invested in arguing about specific years or this kind of thing. I think that, in fact, part of the broader generational discourse is somewhat trivialized because of a excessive focus on sharp boundaries. But there's clearly something distinct about people who were born in the post-war era in the United States. The reason why the baby boomer generation was the first and only generation officially designated as such by the U.S. Census is because there were simply so many babies being born with the return of soldiers from World War II and the return to a prosperous peacetime economy. So that's why the topic of this generation being unique emerges. And I should also say that as a talking point about millennials, some baby boomers criticize millennials for being entitled, but the Time Magazine Person of the Year Award in 1965 was awarded to the entire baby boomer generation just for being born. So the Time Magazine Award went to the inheritors, and they wrote this long article about how the world that these boomers were inheriting was a world of unique, novel, boundless possibility and prosperity, and that they were excited to see where this confidence and basically lucky generation was going to take the United States and the world. And so I think that's that's why this generation should be considered distinct. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to, to uh, delve a little bit into 
the sources of their dis- disproportionate influence on American society. I mean, they were born into, you know, a prosperous peacetime economy, but that's nothing that can't be said for um, Gen Xers and millennials and Gen Zers. I mean, they were also born into, to, you know, um, especially with uh, millennials and Gen Zers, they were born into, you know, rapidly technologically advancing um, economy, um, you know, same same peacetime economy as well. Um, and, and so why, why did we see this, this distinctive trend, um, of disproportionate influence emerge with boomers that we didn't with, um, you know, subsequent generations? So here's where words are insufficient and we need data. So the book has a wealth of longitudinal data, which allows us to make more specific comparisons than simply the economy is good. So if you look at the average rate of GDP growth, when baby boomers were in entering the workforce, that is when they were starting to begin the process of professionalization, it was much higher than it has been for any subsequent generation. So on these quantitative metrics, it is not the case that the boomers are the same as younger generations. This economic prosperity is compounded by their growth into and now control of the major institutions that govern American society. So institutions like um, hospitals, academia, journalism, and then the two major political parties are now governed by baby boomers at a rate that is historically distinct. And I think this is because, A, there were a lot of boomers, B, they were given economic prosperity and access to higher education at an expanded rate, and C, they just got into these positions at the right time, and they have been able to maintain those positions for a very long time. So this is, I think, no one's fault. So I don't, I'm not trying to make an argument that there's anyone really at fault here. It's a confluence of historical contingencies which produced this distinctive generation. And the reason why they're sticking around is thanks to increased longevity. So if it's a success, it's a great thing that people are living longer now, but it means that we have to grapple with the fact that we have more older people who are still in positions of power and because there are only a fixed number of positions of power, their continuing presence means that younger generations are not able to begin the process of socialization and ascent into these institutions at the same rate. Yeah. Um, so if we think about baby boomers as being born in the, the post-war period and benefiting from the you know, um, high rate of GDP growth that you talked about during this era, um, then what confuses me is why those benefits weren't felt to an even greater extent in the next generation after them. So if the boomers, by and large, um, were able to attain high levels of prosperity, one would intuitively assume that um, those economic resources would have provided their children with greater opportunities, better education, more access to capital, and so forth, making them even better off than their parents were. However, I think for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, millennials and Gen Zers can automatically assume that their lives will be better than that of their parents. So, Dr. Munger, I wanted to ask you about why we didn't see the high levels of prosperity attained by boomers um, translate into even greater prosperity for the next generation. So this is a key question. I think that there is something to the fact that the baby boomers basically to a very high rate, and let's say specifically the white baby boomers who were able to actually take advantage of this economic growth and not be discriminated against in hiring and uh, buying property, they were able to live the American dream. They were, in fact, able to work hard, play by the rules, and be wealthier than their parents, and leave 
their children in a better place than they were. So they have an intuitive belief in the system and that it works the way they were promised. And I think the millennial generation is distinct because we were raised, I'm 32, so that's that's me, I'm squarely in this, in this bracket. We were raised in that same world. We were raised in the boomer world of the 90s of uh, American triumphalism, end of history, and the triumph of capitalism. And so we thought that things were going to work out. We thought that everything was going to be great and that we would continue on this, this process of living the American dream. And then in the 21st century, there's been just a series of disasters, of, of, of minor and major crises, which have eroded that success. So 9-11, these wars in the Middle East, and then the 2008 financial crisis really hit home. So for millennials, there's quite a bit of inequality within the generation. The baby boomers were actually within the white baby boomers, there was quite a high degree of equality. Um, if you were working a, a blue collar job, thanks to the demand for American uh, labor because of our high rate of, of, of capital and the fact that our factories were the only ones not bombed during World War II, the average blue collar worker was able to make a, a good living. And that's, that's no longer the case for millennials where there's a distinct inequality between those who are on the professional track who make it into elite higher education or elite corporations or to some kind of professional career as a doctor or lawyer, and a large number of them who don't. And so that inequality, I think, is what's, what's answering your question, that the American dream is still real, but it's shrinking the number of people who, who have access to it with this generation. In terms of why this is happening, I think it's a large kind of a big question about how the economy functions and how our society works. But to no small degree, if you look at uh, housing, this is a, a crucial policy question for many people, uh, younger people moving to larger cities. It's simply unaffordable to buy a house. It's out of the question. It's impossible to think about buying a house on anything but an elite salary. And, and that wasn't the case before. Right? And so boomers were actually able to afford their college education, and they were able to afford to buy a house in reasonably desirable cities without having a, a, you know, the top job available. And so that, I think, is the key difference. It's not that it's true that younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, have access to more consumer goods, better consumer goods than ever before. But on these key these key areas of, of, of consumption, the things that make good life, access to education, healthcare, and housing, uh, our, our palette of options is in fact quite a bit worse. Yeah. Um, so have we seen um, socioeconomic mobility overall decline? Um, or is this just um, a, a, generational, a, a generational difference? So by socio economic ability, do you mean, it's certainly the case that fewer people now are wealthier than their parents than were in previous generations, but perhaps you mean something like the probability that someone who's born into the 90th percentile of income rises to the 10th percentile of income? Um, I, I think the, the other, other way, you know, so someone who's born, um, you know, perhaps in the lowest quintile, uh, moving up to the, the, to the upper quintiles, that, that sort of thing. Right. I, I actually, I have not looked at this in particular. I'm sure this is the, this is the kind of question many people care about. So 
I'm sure that is out there, but I am not. I'm not sure about this. I would say though that the, the I'm looking at quintiles is a bit deceptive because the actual numbers are more unequal now than they were before. So if in fact most people are making in the broad same area, it doesn't really matter if you're the 30th or the 50th percentile. But if there's more e income inequality, it matters a lot if you're moving from these different brackets. Okay. Um, so in the book, you, you talk about the boomer ballast in American politics with ballast being a reference to a heavy substance placed on a vehicle such as a boat to improve stability. So in that context, then a boomer ballast would characterize them as a stabilizing force in politics um, at the optimal level of influence. So can you tell us a bit more about this idea and its importance? Yeah, thanks. This is the, the key, my, my attempt at a theoretical intervention. So I'm trying to get away from cheap polemics, say that boomers are good or bad, um, and to point out that when it comes to something as large as demography or a, a country, society, things don't really change that quickly. There are like long-term forces which are affecting how our society shifts. So like a boat, you can't slam on the brakes. The boat, the boat has momentum. So you can change the momentum, but it takes a long time for it to respond. And the heavier the boat, the more stable it is, but the less easy it is to change its direction. So right now, our society is a boat that is extremely heavy, extremely top-heavy because of the boomer balance. This means that we are, I think, unnaturally stable or unusually stable compared to a world in which we had the traditional age pyramid where there were very few older people and most of the people who were alive were young. And I think that the unfortunate truth, or which I think is largely a coincidence, is that we have this boomer balance, we have this slow but stable society in the midst of a massively important revolution in information technology. And so as the world is changing faster and faster, it would probably be better if we were able to change things faster. But because of demography and because of the effect of a large number of boomers experiencing economic prosperity and then institutional power, we are not able to change things very quickly. And I think I'm mostly trying to diagnose why things feel so weird right now. And this central tension between the slow demographic forces and the fast technological forces is is why I think things are feeling so weird. So can you give us an example of that? Um, like something that we could have changed um, or, or something that we have been slow to change um, where the, the inf institutional power or influence of boomers has, has been a factor? I mean, the clearest example uh, comes from internet regulation where the key internet regulations have basically not been changed in years. The Section 230 of, I forget, the, the Telecommunications Act, I believe, is one of the most important policies and determines the structure of the internet entirely. And it hasn't been changed in decades. And if we had a more tech-savvy, responsive, and in many cases, younger government, <clears throat> we might have been able to pass legislation which is more in keeping with the realities of the internet rather than inheriting legislation 
which was written when the internet was a very, very different thing than it is today. Okay, that that is um, interesting, and also I think a little bit confusing because um, the the sort of regulation you talked about, you know, would be regulated by the federal bureaucracy, um, which is based on sort of a meritocracy system. So you would think that if the the system was working properly, then the the people that would be in charge of that regulation would be sort of the most technically competent, um, and you know, those with the greatest technical understanding, um, it, you know, with the internet and computers and technology, um, likely would be younger, and so you think that even if boomers did um, control sort of the institutions, you know, even if they did control the, the presidency or the, the vice presidency, um, you would still see, you know, technically competent people in charge of in charge of Internet regulation. So has that not been the case? I'm encouraged by your faith in the uh, functioning of the system. But the question is, the executive branch has control over the bureaucracy. And so this is what economists call a principal agent problem. And if the principal is unable to evaluate the performance of the agent, so that is if the executive branch and the people in, in charge are not able to tell if they have in fact good or bad meritocrats, then there's no reason to think that we would be getting good meritocrats. And I think this is, you know, more broadly, right? The policies that the members of Congress, that the high-profile politicians and that the dominant media focuses on, all of these things are connected to an audience for politics, which is older. And so it's not a particularly high salient issue whether or not we have effective technocratic governance of the internet. And as a result, I think it is, is plausible that we would not have effective oversight and that we might have... Um, you know, the policies we have now. Okay, so given the last presidential election, I'm sure many Americans are concerned about the aging trend of elected officials, um, like we just discussed. So the average age of congressional representatives dipped sharply in the late 60s and early 70s before steadily increasing as the boomer generation aged. So can you tell us a bit about this, the, the unique set of factors that led to boomers seeing such great electoral success um, in that time period, how they managed to hold on to that power for so long, and why no subsequent generation has been able to break in? So the simple fact that there were a bunch of boomers shifted the center of gravity of many different elements of society. So the media was targeting the youth demographic for the first time in history. This was when the mass media courted like young people as their, their key advertising demographic, something which we now take for granted, but which was an invention of this time period. And the younger people at the time were also, as I mentioned in the, the Time Magazine article, which helps us perhaps get a sense of what life was like then. There was a sense that this generation was, was born into a kind of destiny, that they were going to go on to change things. And by and large, they believed in themselves. So the increasing political activism in the 60s meant that a lot of baby boomers became interested in politics at a very young age. Uh, even more relevant is the, the amendment which lowered the voting age to 18 was passed in response to pressure by the baby boomer generation when they were young to grant them more political power. So that meant that there was the, a, a, just a, a bump in their 
voter base of three birth years of people all at that one point, which then kickstarted the process of political socialization, getting invested in partisan politics, and being able to win elections. And in terms of why they were able to hold on to power, this is largely because our system rewards incumbents. So even as there's been some reforms to diminish the power of seniority in Congress, there is simply a very, very high base rate at which incumbents hold on to office. So if people got elected once, they're likely to stick around for a very long time. And so as there were a lot of boomers elected at this time period, that, that's why we see so many of them sticking around today. Why, why didn't that incumbency advantage hold um, true to their predecessors? The base demographic rate is important. So the rate at which we get new slots in Congress is as people, older people die and retire. And so this is related to, for example, the increased longevity of humans, I mean, the people, Americans uh, at least. So older generations didn't tend to live as long. And so there used there tended to be more slots opening up. So I, you know, I'm actually not sure about the absolute rate of incumbency across time. That'd be an interesting thing to know. Let's assume it's been roughly constant. As people used to die at an earlier age, that meant there were more boomers who were able to take their places. And because boomers tend to live longer, that's why they've been sticking around. Okay. Um, so the next bit I wanted to talk to uh, talk to you about is the chat we're called, where does identity come from? So as I understand it, boomers, in addition to being born in a distinctive time period in American history, um, have several cultural similarities that characterize them, um, that, that you know are characteristic of, of their upbringing. So can you tell us a bit more about the origins of that separate identity? So one of the organizing principles of American politics is race, and I think that is a, a key reason why the boomers were able to generate such a strong shared identity, which is that it, they were the whitest generation in history. Uh, previous waves of immigrants, largely Jewish, Irish, Italian, these uh, racialized ethnic groups weren't considered white um, in previous generations, but during the 20th century, they became deracialized and they became seen as simply uninflected white. And that was the world the boomers inherited. And this is compounded by changing immigration law in the US. So in the overall, on average, the United States population over the past century has been about 12 to 15 percent foreign born. But in 1950, after they passed some restrictions on immigration in, in the 20s and 30s, the percentage of foreign born in the world the boomers were born into was only about 6 percent. So on both these dimensions, they were living in an unusually ethnically homogenous world, which I think contributes to their the ease in which they were able to generate a, a generational identity. There are fewer cross-cutting cleavages. Uh, we already talked about the broad economic um, equality among this generation, which, which allowed them to experience the world in similar ways. And I think the final point is about information technology. So I mostly study social media. I think information technology, communication technology is very important. And the television the boomers were the first generation raised by television. 
And television as a mass medium has the effect of bringing people together, um, especially in the era in which there were very few television channels to choose from and in which there were FCC regulations that made all of the channels pretty centrist. That meant that this generation was being raised where they all experienced the same media environment and it was all somewhat centrist. And this, again, contributed to their sense of a, a shared generational identity. Yeah, I mean, you you touched on a really, really interesting point there um, about, you know, fewer cross-cutting cleavages resulting in, you know, sort of greater social cohesiveness and, you know, therefore a, a stronger um, generational identity. Um, do you think that that's, that's played a role um, in, in sort of their um, ability to um, concentrate uh, institutional power um, and, um, you know, just to sort of accumulate prosperity? So I think these are related, but not quite the same thing. So I think that one of the key moves in the book is to say that there are a number of different trends, which are broadly not related, which have contributed to the uniqueness of the boomers. And so in social science, what I usually do is try, usually my, my, my research involves trying to find exactly one cause and exactly one effect. And I think for something as broad as this generational story, there's a lot of different causes. And I'm trying to argue that they have kind of coincidentally produced this effect of boomer ballast. Um, but when it comes to identity like this, it doesn't really seem like boomers are going to like give an advantage professionally or politically to other boomers just because, oh, we're all boomers and that's our identity. Uh, it's not quite as strong as an identity as maybe race or gender today is, but it does mean that they had a shared sense of the world, and that kind of made it easier for them to feel as if they were in it together, and that their experience of the world made sense mutually to other people in their generation. Okay, um, so finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Hello? So, oh, sorry, that was a, that was a thinker. Um, <clears throat> I would say the one thing which is somewhat counterintuitive for folks is that there's a sense of... Uh, the inevitability of generational replacement that, of course, humans have a, have a life cycle, we live and die. And at a certain point, boomer, boomer ballast, boomer power will recede. Um, that's correct. I think that people are mistaken at when that will happen. So I think that in terms of the mass political and cultural power of the baby boomers, perhaps has not yet peaked. So the highest number of people in American history will turn 65 next year, 2023. So that's the general it's the standard retirement age. And so that's going to be the single year in which the most people hit this retirement age. And at that point, they're expected to live another 15 or 20 years. And they're going to spend a lot of time um, consuming media at high rates, consuming in particular television at high rates, and consuming in particular partisan television, news television, politics at higher rates. And this contributes to a disproportionate power in the activist bases for both parties and contributes to 
a simply high rate of voter turnout for this generation. And so in terms of the mass political and, and cultural power, um, I, I like to talk about the power of nostalgia among the baby boomers in films, for example. The, the most popular movie this, this year that wasn't a superhero movie was the remake of Tom Cruise in Top Gun, which was kind of a boomer touchstone. So we're, we're continuing to orient our cultural production for an audience which is getting older and older and wants to see the world they grew up in reflected in the media. So for all these reasons, I think boomer ballast and boomer power will, will last longer than most people think and that I, I think it won't really begin to go away en masse until the 2030s. Okay. Um, well, I'm sure we could keep on going for, for hours, but if you guys are interested, um, Dr. Munger's latest book is titled Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Cultural, um, available on Amazon. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Munger. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great combo. Yeah. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.